James K.A. Smith is professor of philosophy at Calvin College. In his 2016 book, You Are What You Love, he makes the case that we are not just thinking beings. We are driven by passions and desires ultimately. That means you might not love what you think, meaning you may believe that something is true. But if your practices don't correspond to your belief, how much do you really believe? The Apostle James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Otherwise, you are fooling yourself. How are our desires shaped by not only the intellect, but by the rhythms and routines of our everyday existence? Today in Mark chapter 7, Jesus goes after some traditions and starts dismantling them. Traditions are not only beliefs, but customs and practices that people habitually engage in. Traditions shape us for better and for worse. What are the real reasons behind our rituals? And how do our traditions speak to what we really love? Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come—sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, 
malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the traditions Naomi and I have done for the past 10 years happens on New Year's Day. Once we started having children, the thought of staying up till 1 a.m. to watch a ball or a pickle or a hunk of meat be dropped from a crane didn't seem like the best use of our time. But we still wanted to mark the specialness of the New Year. So we made the plan. Go to bed normally, wake up for like three minutes like cranky old people complaining about the neighborhood fireworks, go back to bed, Then get up early on New Year's Day, take a drive, find a diner, and have breakfast as a family. That is our tradition. We are saying in a small way, this is what we value and how we are going to practice that value. Even if unstated or not written out in detail, we all have our individual or familial rhythms of life. Some traditions, while still meaningful, are mostly just fun, but others can have more weight to them in our culture or community lives. Trying to convince a group of people to change their Christmas meal tradition because the space that once housed a dozen people comfortably can't now play host to the chaotic loudness of 30 people with little kids might feel like a stab in the back to some. But this is what we've always done, and this is how we've always done it. And you know, I think Uncle Jimmy really needs it this way. Even good traditions can lose the intended meaning when form is valued over substance. Here's one tradition for cornerstone I'm really wrestling with right now. Communion, the taking of the bread and of the cup. And I'm not wrestling with the why or the what or even the when, but the how. I believe there is something so symbolically important in having one loaf and one cup 
that we all share from. Christians can be so divided and play into the societal norms of exalting individualism that I feel in this cultural moment, prophetically, which is not a word I use often, that it is crucial that as we declare dependence on Christ's work, that we see it interconnected, not in single separate entities, but in the one body of Christ. Well, at least for the time being, thanks to COVID, that might need to change, and who knows for how long. There is a part of me dying inside as I Google the pre-packaged juice wafer individually sealed communion cups. I'm transgressing an inner value that makes me want to gag. So if you swing by the office and see an Amazon shopping list on my screen and I'm rocking back and forth in a chair with eyes closed mumbling something about the end times, I'm probably just looking up individual communion cups. No, no need to fear. All that to say, I know the way we do communion at Cornerstone isn't the unique, only God-commanded way, and that the spiritual truth of Christ's sacrifice can be physically embraced in a variety of ways through the bread and the cup. But there are some traditions that seem like commandments of God, or some traditions that play with our heart devotion, making it more difficult to sincerely let go of all besides the resurrected Lord. I would venture that we all have practical, personal, and also spiritual traditions that we partake in, some that are healthy, others that are less than so. We find in the Greek scriptures that traditions, paradosis, play a neutral role. The Apostle Paul uses it in a positive light. He praises the Corinthian church for keeping the ordinances, the traditions that he handed down to them, and to the church in Thessalonica, He encourages the people of God not only to hold fast to the traditions they were taught, but even to keep away from every brother who lives irresponsibly and not according to those traditions. But here in chapter 7 of Mark, Jesus goes after some bad traditions. Jesus is an iconoclast in this regard. An iconoclast is a fancy name for a person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions because those traditions are based on error or superstition. The iconoclast breaks the false image of something. Iconoclasm has a messy background. In Christian history, there were some denominations who went around destroying other denominations' religious art. They didn't want people worshiping the object rather than God, which is noble, But there was little humility in considering that maybe others weren't worshiping the icon, but were using the icon to point their worship to the one true invisible God. Now, it's pretty popular in our modern age to delight in deconstructing tradition, and we need to be careful that we're not just arrogant jerks about it. We can pat ourselves on the back for standing up to the man with such bravery and enlightenment all while neglecting the weightier matters of God's kingdom. We may indeed have no fear. That does not mean we have love. We may be brutally honest about things. That doesn't mean we have truth. Thankfully, we do have Jesus, who does all things well, and whose motives we don't need to question as he goes about undoing traditions. So let's see what he goes after in his day and age, and keep an open mind as to how the Spirit of Christ might want to dismantle some of our own traditions in the 21st century. The prophet Isaiah shows how the people of God should respond when the Lord says to us, this is the way, walk in it. 
Then we will destroy all of our silver idols and our precious golden images. We will throw them away like filthy rags, away with you. Then God will send rain for the seed that we have sown in the ground, and the food that comes from our land will be rich and plentiful. Let's touch briefly on the four traditions gone after in this chapter. Cultural norms of interaction, food laws, Corbin, and ritual washing. And all of these keep on your mind how the outward appearance of virtue might not correspond to the inward motivation of devotion toward God. So religious cleanliness was significant in the Hebrew scriptures, as to be noted in the different commandments in Exodus and Leviticus. The hand-washing tradition debate isn't initiated by Jesus in Mark chapter 7. It takes the Pharisees criticizing the disciples for it to come up. Jesus doesn't go after this tradition until the tradition forces itself on his disciples. So we should wonder, would he ever have addressed it if there wasn't a power play involved? It seems that it's not about the ritual as much as it is about who is more self-righteous in the ritual. Ritual washing was commanded to the priests in the Old Testament. Before they entered the tabernacle, they were to wash hands and feet so that they would not die. It was a serious instruction that was to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Somewhere along the line, however, this instruction was added to, and the tradition of the elders had these types of ritual washings occurring outside of the tabernacle in public and household settings. This is out-of-place obedience, doing things that God never commanded us to do, yet overvaluing it as a word from the Lord, not just for us, but for everyone else too. Practices are important, but in such places, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to prove and who are we trying to prove it to? Jesus rebukes the religious leaders by quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 29. He says, these people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they are worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy, ditching God's commands and taking up the latest fads. Jesus then dovetails into the next tradition that is being used wrongly, that of Corbin. A religious person could proclaim Corbin over some of their possessions. Corbin meant God's gift, something that was consecrated only to God. And if it was dedicated to God, it could still be used in some regard, but was forbidden to be given to others because it's God's. The command to honor your mother and father was highly esteemed in the Middle Eastern culture. This honoring often included provision for family when they were old. So in some way, some people were proclaiming Corbin over some of their possessions that could have been used to take care of their parents or honor the commandment. Tradition in this case provided a loophole or an excuse for following a commandment. The third tradition Jesus goes after has to do with how people thought food laws defiled someone. Clean hands... Putting clean food into our bodies means that we are clean, right? 
This is somewhat lost on us Gentiles, especially 2,000 years later, but it was a big deal that Mark says that Jesus declared all foods clean. There are different types of laws and commands in the Hebrew scriptures, and the frustrating thing about it can be that there is this inner mix of them, that they aren't neatly divided under headers for which ones are which. And then there's the whole interpretation aspect, too, of does this fall under this category or that category? But usually there are three categories for the laws. There are moral laws based on God's holy, unchanging nature, and then civil and ceremonial laws, which are pointed towards a people, in this case the Jews, in a cultural place and in a certain point of time. Eating certain clean foods or not eating unclean foods was part of those ceremonial laws. And they had meaning to the people and they also had purpose from God. But even if they were good and given by God, they shouldn't be mistaken for something that they were not. And so Jesus is drawing attention to what really matters. And what defiles us is not what goes into our stomachs, but what comes out from our hearts. I can eat all the ceremonially good things but still be filled with moral wickedness within. So we have the first tradition that Jesus goes after, which is the ritual washing. We have the second one, which is the misuse of Corbin. We have this third one, which is what do food laws mean and what don't they mean? And then we have this final one that kind of breaks from the narrative a little bit, but yet seamlessly interconnects to the traditions of what is clean and what is unclean, what is of value and what is trash, and where are people's hearts in the midst of traditions. This is Jesus's interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. And there's a lot of uh, tricky and weird things about this interaction, but we'll just stick with the flow of how Jesus is dismantling cultural norms. So there's a section in Kenneth Bailey's book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he writes the following. He writes, A critical component in both the parables of Jesus and the dynamic stories about him is the ever-present community. Contemporary Western society is highly individualistic. Most of the societies in the majority world still function as tightly knit communities. Descartes, the 17th century French philosopher, concluded, I think, therefore I am. However, African theologians reply, I am because we are. The individual lives, moves, and has his or her being as part of a community. That community gives identity and profoundly influences both attitude and lifestyle. In the stories from and about Jesus, the surrounding community on or off the stage is a critical component in all that takes place. And so this is important because we know from the parallel version in Matthew that the disciples were with Jesus during this interaction with the woman. And the tension of the back and forth between Jesus and the woman could have been used to draw the disciples and the readers into a teaching trap where you think the woman is going to get educated by Jesus, but you end up being the one getting schooled by the woman. In the cultural tradition of the day, men and women didn't speak to opposite gendered strangers. In public, many rabbis even didn't talk to females of their own family. 
Additionally, you didn't ask or beg for favors across Jew and Gentile lines. In contrast to the male, Jewish, clean, religious leaders who outwardly were trying to do things overly right, we have the female, Gentile, unclean, uneducated beggar outwardly breaking all the traditions of interaction. And yet who gets it? She does. By a turn of a phrase that comes out of her mouth, from her heart, her request is granted, and the power of God is unleashed. I talked a lot about how Jesus came against a lot of Jewish traditions today because that was his culture and his context. However, there are places in Paul's letters where he tells the Gentile Christians to back off the Jewish Christians because they were being arrogant toward the different traditions and practices of those Jewish believers. It doesn't matter what tribe or country or ethnical background or spiritual heritage we are from. We must remember that God's love through Jesus is always for us, even when he is against us. He is not just towards those people or these people. He is looking to save and rule the world. So take some time this week to think about how the traditions you participate in form you. What are the real reasons behind our rituals? How do our traditions speak to what we really love? Let's use the scripture at the end of Mark 7 as we close in prayer. Father, we can be a people that neither hear nor speak words of life. We mistake our ways of doing things with your ways, holding onto some traditions so tightly that we don't allow your spirit to run through us. May your grace turn our hearts to you. When we don't have the light or the will to come to you on our own, God, we pray in our weakness that your community would bring us before you, begging to receive your touch. Take us to the side, God, personally laying your hands on our ears and touching our tongues that they may be open. Jesus, you are astonishing beyond all measure. You do all things well. Amen. Amen.